college or you're in school and this is spring break and that's why you're able to be here on this Monday, spring break time. We've got a few people like that, so praise the Lord for that. And uh, so I want to start off this morning uh, probably quoting one of the deepest um, theologians out there, Patty Loveless. And she, she had a CD a few years back entitled The Trouble with the Truth. And the title track on that album says, Oh, the trouble with the truth is it's always the same old thing. So hard to forget, so impossible for me to change. Every time I try and fight it, I know I'll be left to blame. Oh, the trouble with the, trouble with the truth is it's always the same old thing. And the trouble with the truth is it's just what I need to hear. Ringing so right deep down inside my ear, and it's everything I want, and it's everything I fear. Oh, the trouble with the truth is, it's just what I need to hear. And then the vamp goes like this. It had ruined the taste of the sweetest lies, burned through my best alibis. Every sin that I deny keeps hanging around my door. Oh, the trouble with the truth is, it always begs for more. That's the trouble. Trouble with the truth, last verse. And the trouble with the truth is it just won't let me rest. I run and hide, but there's always another test. And I know that it won't let me be till I've given it my best. The trouble with the truth is it just won't let me rest. That's the trouble, the trouble with the truth. And I think that if you were honest, you would admit that all kinds of people have trouble with the truth today. The emergent or emerging church, that fad that was popular a few years back, they have trouble with the truth. Postmodern philosophy has trouble with the truth. Reformed theology has trouble with the truth. Hyper-dispensationalism has trouble with the truth. And hyper-independent, hyper-Baptist, hyper-fundamentalists, well, they have trouble with everything so that they can be fighting fundamentalists and, and have hyper-trouble with everybody. And so the result is... We're nearly in exactly the same condition today as the culture of Paul's Rome in the first century. Carl F.H. Henry, who was a Christian, evangelical Christian theologian, made this statement. He said, no fact of contemporary Western life is more evident than its growing distrust of final truth and its implacable questioning of any sure word. And he made that statement in 1976 at the height of what Harold Linzel called the battle for the Bible, which really predicted the present upheaval over biblical authority. So I want to take just a second and talk about a living faith fellowship. What is our response? Why are we having conferences like this? And the answer is because, you know, Baptist churches strive to be New Testament churches. And that means we don't necessarily feel pressured by the way other people do things. And many times the way other people do things are simply the barnacles that have attached to the bottom of the ship over time that slow it down and divert its course. And so instead, and this is our thesis for today's study... What the Living Faith Fellowship is about is striving to do church like Earth's earliest Christians. And I know the emergent, emerging church says, you know, they're bringing a lot of stuff back into the church from what they would call the early church. But the early church is not the earliest church. The earliest church is the New Testament church. It's the Book of Acts church. 
And then the church goes into a tunnel for 200 years and you don't see it because, uh, you know, they kill all their Christians. And when it comes out in the 4th century with Constantine, it looks totally different than when it went in. That's the early church. So they're reading some of the early church back into church and trying to do it that way. So, so what has happened is the same thing is taking place in American society with regard to religion as is taking place in American politics. What happened in politics at the end of the Roman Republic, and one reason for the ending of the Roman Republic, was the polarization. And what has happened in American Christianity uh, uh, happened in Judaism at exactly the same time in that first century. You had the Pharisees, they rejected Jesus because of their legalism. You had the Sadducees. They rejected the work of the Spirit because of their liberalism and their skepticism. And so we've come full circle in 20 centuries' time, so much so that we have been deflected by the extremists on the wings. And so it seems sometimes like you cannot find a King James church that's not legalistic, and you cannot find a, an evangelical church that understands biblical authority and a faith-based view of Scripture. So everybody, it seems like, is either a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and nobody is standing with Jesus. But not so of a true Baptist church, not so of our living faith fellowship. Why? Because a true Baptist church is a true biblical church. You know, I noticed Pastor Bartell said, uh, uh, I don't know, a couple of three weeks ago, kind of leading up to this conference, to find a church that believes what we believe and experiences it the way we experience it, he said, boy, they're really hard to find. And so when we find people like us, we just want to do stuff together. And by stuff, he means New Testament Christianity. And, and, and by New Testament church, we mean we are willing to organize, to evangelize, to disciple, to educate, to train our leaders, and to send cross-cultural ministers from the people that we've trained. So Pastor Bartell said, we are intentionally fellowshipping together in an organized way with churches we agree with doctrinally, philosophically, and we call it the Living Faith Fellowship of Churches. These are friends that we have in ministry we choose to serve together. And I, and I will state that as we do that, we do that because Bible believers historically and Baptist churches historically have done that. So what we're doing with this fellowship, this, this grouping... I think like Pastor Bartell says, it's not a denomination, it's not a hierarchy, we're all independent churches, every church decides willingly and freely if they want to, to participate in what is going on, and, and he would say this, this fellowship's mutually beneficial to every church, and it is as a fellowship of non-legalistic churches bound to the idea of biblical authority and a faith-based view of the Bible, and this is the reason that our conference is really a certainty conference on Bible doctrine and education. And this year happens to hit on the reason that you must be a dispensational if, if you want to have sound doctrine. So let me talk about the good, refor the, the reformed and the ugly. Okay, the good, the reformed, and the ugly. And in wrapping up our link, in plugging into the socket of last year's Certainty Conference on Calvinism, let me just lay dispensationalism's foundation right where it belongs, and that is on the idea of biblical authority and a faith-based view of the Bible. We have a view of the Bible that gives us a faith response to God's truth versus approaching it skeptically. 
if, if, you approach, if you do not approach the Bible with the same assumptions I have, we can look at the same evidence and come at totally different conclusions. So, so, so can I tell you where we're at today? Where we're at today is we have shifted from relativism, and Dr. Bartlett mentioned that yesterday, we've shifted from that to postmodernism because we have drifted away from biblical authority. And so we put on your handout a chart that kind of takes you through, we're listing three stages there, relativism. That, you know, uh, uh, that uh, doctrine of no, of no sure word, no certain word. And then postmodernism and some of the ideas that come out of that versus uh, the truth of biblical authority. I can see you're not getting this. Your eyes are already glazing over, just like the donut you had for breakfast. And so in the movie, the great debaters Denzel Washington portrays the uh, Marshall, Texas debate coach Melvin Tolson. And he reminds his new debate team of how Virginia slave masters use techniques in order to keep a slave physically strong, but psychologically weak and dependent. And the, uh, the objective was to keep the body, but take away their mind. To, to steal their critical thinking capacity for themselves. And this is my illustration, if you will, for how Satan has enslaved the evangelical church into meat locker Christianity, into refrigerated religion, into lukewarm mediocrity, especially through apathy about Bible prophecy and our blessed hope as believers which is the rapture of the church. So my goal in this certainty conference is to do what Melvin Tolson did for the Marshall, Texas debate team and to help you find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. And when, when we lost our righteous mind, what happened was there were three things that diluted evangelical Christianity. And, you know, Pastor Bartellus said that, it, that it's important to understand dispensationalism because if you don't have a dispensational view of scriptures, it's impossible to believe every word of the Bible as it is written without changing it, adding to it, subtracting from it, misinterpreting it. Uh, uh, you cannot receive the Bible literally if you don't have a dispensational view of the scriptures. So, so there has been a shift that has led to a drift Theologically, it has been a shift away from dispensational hermeneutics or dispensational uh, a way of interpreting the Bible and, and knowing how to study your Bible. Philosophically, it's been a shift toward postmodernism. In Carl Henry's day, it was a shift toward relativism and situational ethics. In our day, it's a shift toward postmodernism, and that drifting shift in evangelical theology centers, I think, on at least three contemporary factors. And actually, after I put this together, I thought of a fourth, fourth one. Let me mention it as 1A, um, and just go ahead and mention it now so I don't forget it. But I think, I think uh, 1A factor might be the, the self-focused therapeutic counseling that we have in Christianity today. A self-focused, it's not biblical counseling, it's not pastoral counseling, it's self-focused therapeutic counseling, and it says, your heart is good. 
and your feelings need to be affirmed. Well, that's what every good Roman said. Uh, but, but number one, number one, the first thing I've listed on your notes, the resurgence of Reformed theology. The influence of the young Calvinists and the acceptance of Reformed theology means at least two things. It means the death of evangelism because of the unbiblical way that they define election and predestination and reprobation. Talking last night with one of the pastors from uh, Lawrence, Kansas, and uh, he has a church there in, in Lawrence, and that's a college town with KU, and, and uh, they're trying to get Franklin Graham to come in and uh, speak uh, uh, in 2018, and he would be in Allen Fieldhouse, and he would, he, would, he would speak and do an evangelistic crusade type of thing, and yet uh, uh, some of the pastors in the um, area around Lawrence that, would, uh, that you would hope would want to host him don't want to do that because they're Calvinistic, and so it's like, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to have somebody come out and speak and preach specifically evangelistically? Because, you know, whoever's going to save is going to be saved. So it's, it's, it's the death of evangelism, and that's an unfortunate thing because then we're not getting the gospel out like we're supposed to to the people that it should get to. And also it means an apathy over prophecy. That's that. So the resurgence of Reformed theology is the death of evangelism and it's apathy over prophecy because they give up on the propositional truth and the literal interpretation of the Bible and they turn it into an allegorical metaphor. Now, to be fair, there is a reason for the resurgence and there are causes for the popularity of the emergent church and, and the new Calvinists and, and just like the Jews who returned after the captivity... You might say that they are establishing a nation, a nation, rebuilding a temple, and restoring worship, but all that is is Reformation. They want to go back to the Reformation. And Reformation only changes the outside. What you need is a spiritual work from within. So for a lot of former fundamentalists, uh, a couple of names that I'll mention, they were popular a few years back, um, uh, Rob Bell wrote a book called Velvet Elvis, and he was popular for a minute until he, until, it came, until he came out of the closet. I know we're trying to come out of the basement, but he came out of the closet and he <laughs> said that, you know, there is no hell. <clears throat> kind of like Neo with the spoon, there is no spoon, there is no hell. Uh, and so it's kind of a universalism, uh, you know, if not everybody will go to heaven, at least nobody will go to hell. And uh, that was his reaction against his fundamentalist upbringing. Uh, another guy was Brian McLaren. He wrote the book, A Generous Orthodoxy. And again, uh, uh, he, uh, you know, both of them have such bitterness against the legalistic type of fundamentalist upbringing that they had that they write books to try and influence other evangelicals away from sound doctrine. And, and so what happened was their faith went flat. They no longer had a living faith. Their faith went flat, and when their faith went flat, they replaced it with fizz, not with sound theology. And so the resurgent reformers piggyback off of sound Puritan and devotional theology. And so what happens is reformed theology makes sense as long as you don't think about it. I mean, if, if all you do is listen to a hipster in an untucked shirt and sandals expound it, 
then it sounds pretty cool. It sounds cool as long as you do not find, take back, and keep your righteous mind by thinking critically and comparing its doctrine of salvation and the second coming against what Scripture actually says. So that, so that is the first drift, the second shift leading to a drift in evangelicalism, and this is number two, is the exaltation of story over biblical exposition. So this is a method of interpreting the Bible that makes you the center. The important thing is not the principles. It's not Bible principles. It's not the propositional truth found in the Bible. That was the old enlightenment way of thinking. The important thing is the conversation. So we don't come to church. We have a gathering. We don't stand in a pulpit. We sat on a chair because we're having a conversation so that we can be tolerant and learn from your encounter. So, so again, what I have to do today is I have to bring out my uncertainty glasses so that, because otherwise I don't view the Bible uncertainly, and so I need uncertainty glasses to help me view it uh, uncertainly, and that way... And that way, I'll give you a fair representation of what, what they are saying. So according to Rob Bell, here's what Rob Bell says. To say that you're able to just read the Bible for what it says is a warped and toxic view. That's Rob Bell. Now, now I would say that is Lance Armstrong calling Tom Brady a cheater, but anyhow... <laughs> The third drifting shift in evangelical theology, number three, is the influence of new perspectives, personalities. Okay, so, so one of them, so Rob Bell. Rob Bell says, we can no longer believe Scripture alone is our guide because the Bible is open-ended. And when people say, all we need is the Bible... It's simply not true. Now that's Rob Bell. Another popular theologian today is N.T. Wright. N.T. does not stand for New Testament, stands for Nicholas Thomas. And he's an evangelical, he would say he's evangelical, Anglican theologian. And, uh, you know, he's very popular, and uh, he's, he's the theologian behind the statements of Rob Bell and of Brian McLaren and and, and it's, it's Wright's books that have uh, uh, been the philosophy behind what they say, uh, as well as a host of young Calvinists and, and new reformers who fancy themselves as bringing fresh perspectives to biblical theology and to missiology. And Wright particularly emphasizes story as a way of understanding Jesus and Paul. So he often looks at the Bible and he uses the analogy of a five-act play. What the Bible presents to you in redemptive history is a five-act play, and yet he rejects the idea of dispensations. Well, what the what? You, you're death on dispensationalists, and yet you say the Bible is a five-act play. 
So, so I will indict this resurgence of Reformed theology and this exaltation of story over Scripture exposition and these personalities pushing new perspectives for two things that land us and leave us in last days unsound doctrine. First, letter A. They subtweet the biblical text. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Because a tweet is a message posted through the website Twitter. You know, people used to blog. Well, people used to write in journals and stuff. Uh, back when they remembered how to write. <laughs> Today they don't even teach you cursive writing in elementary school, so, so we don't write anymore. Okay, so, but they, then, they, then they started writing they, 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 they did what they would write online, so, so it was a web log, so they called it blogging. And uh, so kind of a journal that was regularly updated on the internet as a web page. And then we developed texting, and the maximum number of characters that you can send in an SMS text is 160. And so Twitter said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to allow you to send out any message you want to anyone who follows you in the world as long as it's only 140 characters long. So basically, this is a 140-character blog. And, and so we're limiting you to 140 characters to say whatever you want to say and then post it on your timeline to Twitter. And since it's that small, 140 characters, it's called a tweet. And you could follow people, and they could follow you, and you could see their tweets, and they could see your tweets, and it was so tweet, tweeting together. <laughs> but let's say you have a follower on Twitter, and you want to deliver a status update that calls them out without using their name. You don't want to use their Twitter handle and create a lot of drama over it, but you want to call them out without using their name. That's called a subtweet. That's short for a subliminal tweet. In other words, you're talking about what they're doing, and you're doing it in a negative and insulting way, typically using mockery or sarcasm, but you're doing it covertly. You don't use their Twitter handle. So all they do is they, they see it in their timeline. They know it was from you, but they can't be sure and certain that you meant it for them. So it's kind of behind their back and yet in their face. It's, it's, it's a left-handed slap. N.T. Wright believes that the return of Jesus, he, re, he believes in the return of Jesus, I would say, the same way that Muslims believe Jesus is the Messiah, in just kind of a nebulous, unbiblical way. So all the biblical descriptions of the coming kingdom as a restored Jewish kingdom, N.T. Wright subtweets that text and says, no, that's just a metaphor. And he, and he uses that term metaphor as a sub, subtweet against those of us who take the Bible literally. He doesn't, he doesn't call my name. He doesn't call me by name. So I don't have to take it personal. But I know he's talking about me. And just to justify his subversion and abrogation of the promises of God through Scripture. He takes, he takes to his books, and in his books he calls us small-minded. 
And again, he doesn't, he doesn't use our name. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, First Baptist Church, New Philadelphia. But, but he calls us small-minded. So, so again, if I'm going to give you a fair reading of N.T. Wright, I've got to put my uncertainty glasses on because Wright says, nobody supposes that Paul imagined Jesus would make his appearance flying downward on a cloud. Well, if nobody supposes that, that means what he's saying is we shouldn't suppose that. He says the image speaks clearly to anyone with ears attuned to the first century. Oh, that's what that is. What we are back to is the highest understanding of Scripture, is, is knowing what, what the original hearers understood it as, what it meant for them. So the imagery speaks clearly to anyone with, with ears attuned in the first century of the vindication of the true Israel over her enemies. No interpreter ought to imagine that the Son of Man can be interpreted liber- literally as a human figure floating on a cloud. And if anyone does interpret it that way, he calls that embracing a monstrosity and a myth. Now, some of these theologians, you know, I'm mentioning by name, I don't recommend that you buy their books or read any of them because they play three and a half sides. And so, and so while mocking those uh, little-minded American conservatives who hold to a more traditional perspective without using my Twitter handle, he interprets every one of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven passages as referring to Jesus judging Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Because he says Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. So that means that second coming texts refer to an invisible return to vindicate true Israel, which is the church, against fake Israel, which is actually the Jewish nation in, in his mind. Now, there are times when there is a subtext to Scripture. Um, You know, Book of Revelation. Um, John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos is not able to directly say, hey, um, at Domitian is a cornholio. He's a cornhole. John is not able to say that directly. So he calls Rome, Babylon, and some, but, you know, um, return to the King of Kings, day of the Lord, that's, that's not one of those places that is a subtweeting the text. The covenant prom- promises of God are not metaphors. They were not intended to be understood as metaphors. The promised land is, is not a metaphor. The specific boundaries of the land as defined by God are not metaphors. The throne of David is not a metaphor. The title which Jesus personally applied to himself, King of the Jews, that's not a metaphor. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 do not compose one enormous metaphor. And to subtweet the text like that is to pervert the very words of God. But there's a specific reason that this doctrine of demons is popular in our day. And it has to do with the displacement of God's covenant people, Israel. Because if you can eliminate the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, David, and Jeremiah, then you have broken the word of God. And if you've broken the word of God, you've broken God. 
So the second thing I indict them for that leaves us and lands us in last days, unsound doctrine, this is letter B, is everything but dispensationalism commits identity theft. Yes, it does. I, I think it was Brett Bartlett that talked last year about supersessionism. But I don't use language like that because I stopped cussing when I was in junior high school. And so, so I call it, you know, fulfillment theology or replacement theology because it's the demonic doctrine that Israel has been completely replaced by the church. Only the church is the new Israel, the true Israel. Now Paul attacks that cultic, demonic idea at its root and eradicates it in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. But remember, covenant and reform theology is not a product of Scripture. It is a product of logic and human reasoning. So covenant and reform theology commits identity theft against Israel. It steals as belonging only to the church all the promises God made to Israel. And only dispensationalism rightly divides the word of God and the truth in order to maintain that distinction between the church and Israel and maintain the integrity of God to fulfill his promises of the word of God to the Jews. Did you ever realize if you're not a dispensationalist, then the continued existence of the Jewish people in spite of all the pogroms and all the final solutions means nothing. If you're not a dispensationalist, then, then it doesn't mean nothing. The fact that God preserved them to, for 2,000 years and, and no other ethnic group that had suffered like that, it, that, that doesn't mean nothing. The rebirth of the nation of Israel after 20 centuries means nothing. The fact that they became a nation in 1948 and then regained control of their capital 19 years later means nothing, even though they lost control of their capital in 605 B.C. and then were removed from their nation 19 years later. So God's hand in history means nothing to you if you're not dispensational because you're an identity thief. So, so these are three areas of shift and drift that have diluted the promises of God, have twisted the principles of the Bible, have, have, have perverted the people of God and the kingdom of God because they end up breaking the scriptures. So the issue is one of ultimate authority. Nearly any doctrine, true or crank, can be supported by the church and history. Probably the most unreliable authorities are the church fathers because the early church fathers, remember that group, not, not, you know, not to, we're not talking about um, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Paul. We're not talking about those people in the actual New Testament. Early church fathers means those who start in about the third century under Constantine. And, and, and after that, they are the most unreliable authorities available because they're the ones who came up with replacement theology. So they are unreliable, along with the rabbinic sages, the rabbis who attempted to erase anything that would link Jesus with being the Messiah, including their own dating system. 
So if you ever wonder, you know, why do the Jews have different dates? This is year 57, da-da-da, or whatever it is in, in Jewish years. Why is that so different from what we see in the Bible? Because they purposely changed it. After the first sin, they purposely changed it. So that, so that none of their people would be able to go back and figure out that Jesus was their Messiah. So it's the testimony of God in, 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 in Scripture that is true. But the alternative is this scholastic quest of would-be autonomous man to be the authority. Uh, is, is your authority divine or is it human? Is it God or is it self? Is it man's word or is it divine revelation? If the Bible is the authority, then there is a sure word of prophecy. So let me talk about that for a second. Because there's trouble with the truth. But since you're not yet feeling me like I need you to, can I just go, go ahead and stand for a second? Don't say anything, just stand, just stand and stretch. Don't say nothing or I won't let you do this again. Because I, I want you to listen with me. I want to give you an experiential exegesis of your trouble with the truth. I just need to extrapolate from your experience for a second because first off, notice if you will, what contemporary country theologian Patty Loveless says. Number one, the truth is always the same old thing. It's hard to forget and impossible for you to change. Every time you try to fight it, you are the one who is left to blame. Because truth stands outside of culture, it stands outside of history, it stands even outside your own experience and your own logic and human reasoning. God's word creates, it's not controlled. So it's not just that God is authoritative. His word is authoritative. That is why the word of God will always do the work. And it can be equated with him. In at least 54 particulars throughout the Bible, the word of God and God are equated. So go ahead and have a seat. Now that you stretched some and got the blood flowing, because second, on the other hand, this is number true. Number two, the truth is just what you need to hear. It rings so right deep down inside your ear. It's everything you want. At the same time, it's everything you fear. So you may not like the truth, but you know you need to listen to the truth. And the truth is what I'm going to be giving you next. And third, third, number three, the truth ruins the taste of your sweetest lies. Just like it burns through all your alibis for every sin that you deny. Truth destroys human rationalization. It takes the carpet out from under your self-justification. And in the final analysis, this is number four, the truth just won't let you rest. You run and hide, but there's always another test because it won't let you be until you've given it your best. That's the trouble, the trouble with the truth. I like Patty Loveless so much better than Tom Wright. But your trouble is you've never taken time to see how to learn. Therefore, you cannot study. You cannot study your Bible if you won't take the time to see how to learn it. So you've, and you've got to learn according to the way that God teaches. Not, not by buying those namby-pamby books that just say, well, here's how you learn. Observation interpretation, application. Well, here's our first point for study. That's not the way God teaches. God teaches by three methods, by association, by contrast, and by repetition. 
God teaches by association. Let the whole church say association. Association, association is always accompanied by pictures, by Bible types. So God teaches by comparison, but also by contrast. Let the whole church say contrast. And contrast is always accompanied by division. So law is contrasted with grace for salvation. The kingdom of heaven is contrasted with the kingdom of God. The two natures in the believer are contrasted. New nature, old nature. Your standing in Christ is contrasted with your state in life. The rapture is contrasted with the second coming. The church is contrasted with Israel. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. So get Ephesians 3 in your left hand, 2 Timothy 2 in your right hand. And um, so I'm just going to remind you of some verses we've already looked at, but, but that's the third way that God teaches, because God teaches by comparison, and God teaches by contrast. So you've, you've got to learn the Bible by rightly dividing the distinctions that he draws. But third, God's method of teaching is by consistency. Let the whole church say consistency. And consistency is always accompanied by repetition. You know, one thing you can count on, you can always count on, is God's consistency. And this would all sound simple enough, but unfortunately, the trouble with the truth comes in two directions. People today have trouble with the truth and what it's saying to them that they don't like. And secondly, those who follow the truth end up in trouble. We bear a stigma for declaring end-time prophecies according to a systematic discipline of rightly dividing Scripture. We, we are labeled kooks and nuts. Maybe that's better than fruits and nuts, but still. It, it, you know, we're, we are told that we believe myths and a monstrosity. And liberal intellectuals ridicule us for insisting on a literal fulfillment of all prophecies uh, concerning the end of this age and the day of the Lord, they say, you know, don't look for literal fulfillment. We've, you know, that takes you out of what you ought to be doing now somehow. But, you know, when you have a systematic discipline of rightly dividing Scripture and you discover the ruling lines of progressive revelation, then you're able to put your Bible together finally and maybe for the first time. And so I just want to give you a few of those before we leave today, and then I'll be done. So here's the first one. Number one, there's one eternal purpose. If you look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, again, repetition. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To be approved to God, you have to be a workman in the word of God. Now, if you're a workman... That means you have a blueprint. You're going from a plan. You have to know the drawings and the specs so that you can make right cuts. <coughs> Excuse me. So if we don't correctly define God's plan for the ages, we will be ashamed when we stand before him. And beyond that, the cults and the charismatics and the kooks will beat you over your head with your own Bible if you don't rightly divide it. So the Bible is a revelation. It is a divine plan that is revealed progressively. It describes things that only God can do because only God can create something out of nothing. 
And only God can resurrect something back to life after it's died. So creation, ruin, redemption. But what does it mean to rightly divide the truth of this word? Look at Ephesians 3 again. Again, this is just repetition. Verse 10. To the intent that now and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 21. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So I condense God's eternal purpose into three concise things. To glorify God by Jesus Christ through his body, this church. So in essence, we're back to a dispensational view that goes from creation to ruin to redemption, from perfection to fall to recreation or rebirth. So from our perspective on this side of eternity, it's all about the work of discipleship. And the work of discipleship is transformation. It is Christ's body. And Christ's body doing the work, not of making Christ followers, but of making little Christs. Now let me be kind and rewind, because I can see you miss that. God's goal is to clone a lot of little Christs. Why did we ever stop calling ourselves Christians and exchange it for the phrase Christ followers? That is so inaccurate because you are not just to be a follower of him. That's what Earth's early Christians were, not earliest but the early ones in the imperial church set up by Constantine, they were all Christ followers. They followed him, but Christians are Christ clones with the genetic spiritual DNA of Christ. So I hope you're more than a Christ follower. I hope you're a true Christian, a little Christ, because then what is true of you on the inside will be apparent on the outside. And that is the hope of the glory of God by Jesus Christ through his body, this church. If there has been no change in your character, meaning you're only following Christ, but you're not a Christian, there will be no transformation. And let me hit you with this definition. Transformation, making disciples, is the spirit-driven process of shaping the inner man in such a way it becomes Christ-like. We use external tools to shape the inner man, meaning our discipleship lessons, whether that's 16 lessons, 18 lessons, however many lessons. We have lessons. We have a curriculum. You have to have a curriculum so everybody's on the same page. But the reason that we have that curriculum is because it contains the Word of God. We're going through the Word of God with people on those specific key topics. Holy Spirit, prayer. We're going through the Word of God with them so that through that, through that uh, chisel, we're able to sculpt their soul on the inside. It's the work of transformation. So spiritual transformation is divine grace activated by faith in the Word of God to do the work that you cannot do on your own of changing yourself. So much so that your outer life becomes a natural expression of the character of Christ. 
So, so, so what that takes is three things. To make any real spiritual transformation, there are three critical ingredients. Number one, vision. Let the whole church say vision. Vision means we are gripped by the necessity of glorifying God. We desire the desirability of this because as soon as the vision is clear, it sweeps everything else into its vortex, even the difficult and distracting circumstances. Then second, along with vision, we must have earnest intention. Let the whole church say intention. Because projects of spiritual transformation do not happen automatically. They do not happen accidentally. They spring from a free will decision to walk with Christ. So action has to be purposeful. It has to start from inside. And that is called intention. Which brings us third to strategy. Let the whole church say strategy. There is a means and instrumentality that enables our intention to fulfill the vision. Christ's body, the church, if, it, if the vision is clear, if the intention is earnest, if the means and method are consistent, then the outcome is assured. Booyah! <laughs> Booyah is what you say when you dunk the basketball over somebody who is defending you. Then you say booyah. See, I wasn't sure about this crowd. I don't know. I don't know if you play hockey, which is just organized fighting. I, I don't understand it. I, but I don't know if you play soccer, you know, where you stub your toe, and if you cry, big enough tears, the ref will, you know, give them a red card or whatever because they made you stub your toe. I, so I'm not sure where you're coming from, but, but booyah is what you say when you dunk it over somebody who's defending you. So turn to Matthew chapter 28, because if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're saying. Look, Alan, I know God's will is, is more for me than just to get saved, be forgiven, and granted eternal life. I know God's will for me is more than just to come to church on Sunday and sit in the pew, because it's only logical that if God has given me eternal life, it's because he has some eternal purpose. And he does because God's dream for all of us is to grow up into his image, to mature, to obtain the full stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ. That is God's dream and that is discipleship's goal. And Jesus said all the earth will be drawn to that if we will fulfill the Great Commission because the Great Commission has to do with our discipleship. Okay, watch. Did I say turn to Matthew 18? Okay, verse, verse, excuse me, Matthew 28? Okay, I said 28. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Here's what you do with that. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So this is not an eternal purpose. So it only covers unto the end of the world, unto the end of the age, unto the end of the dispensation, as it were. Um, the only opportunity you have for evangelism is, is this life. So I don't know if you're a fisherman. Well, you can only fish in this life, so you better go fishing instead of just a wishing. 
Because the only opportunity for evangelism, they will not have evangelistic crusades in heaven. I'm just saying. So, so this is not an eternal purpose. This is an unto the end of the world, space-time purpose. But it's still one thing condensed into three activities. Make disciples by going with the Father's gospel, baptizing converts into Bible-believing churches, and teaching them to observe all truth. So unlike many Baptist or Bible churches, we are intentional about discipleship. We've studied it out. We see how Jesus brought his earliest disciples through seven phases in three and a half years. But the first three phases we can condense down into about 16 lessons, a curriculum we call Discipleship One. And Jesus took about six months to get his men through these first three phases. That is what we lay out in our discipleship conference. That's what we'll talk about in Georgia when we have the conference down there. So there's one eternal purpose, and against this are two trinities in conflict. First, there's the triune God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then there's the satanic trinity, Lucifer, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Lucifer tried to ascend to the sides of the north and become God the Father. The beast, as the mystery of iniquity, meaning... The devil with skin on uh, tries to become like Jesus Christ, who is God with skin on. And then the false prophet will counterfeit the works of the true spirit of God. So there are two trinities in conflict, and this conflict encompasses three Trinitarian realms. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. There is heaven, there is earth, there is hell. But each one is a triune place. So number one, heaven contains three heavens, actually. Heaven contains the heaven of our atmosphere. Heaven contains outer space. Heaven contains the throne of God. Now you can see all of this in Psalm 148. The first heaven is the blanket of air around the earth. The next heaven can be seen at night and through the Hubble Space Telescope. But 1 Kings chapter 8 Verse 27 says, but God, will, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Will he dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot, the heaven, atmosphere around the earth, and the heaven of heavens, outer space, cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built it. So heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. So God spills over into the third heaven where he dwells on a throne before a sea. Number two, hell. Hell is a triune place. It's comprised of Sheol or, or Hades. Sheol's an Old Testament Hebrew word. Hades, a New Testament Greek word. It's also comprised of what Jesus called Abraham's bosom, that temporary place where Old Testament saints had to rest until Jesus shed his blood so that paradise could be moved up to the third heaven. So it's comprised of hell, of Abraham's bosom, and of the lake of fire. Sometimes people say, I don't believe in hell because all the hell I'm going to get, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving right here in this life. All right, your life is hell. But when you die, you'll go to hell. And then your hell will be cast in the lake of fire. That's just too much hell. So, so, so even hell has two sub-basements. Tartarus, a prison for the fallen angels, and the bottomless pit, which will be a prison for Satan. But number three, earth is a triune place. 
It has fears for humans, fish, and fowl uh, on land, in the sea, and in the air. Which brings us to the fact that this conflict, this conflict that is taking place in three Trinitarian realms is for the souls of three ethnic divisions. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All the Bible is for you, not all the Bible is addressed to you. There are three ethnic groups, three applications, and three plans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, Paul says, give none offense. Okay, don't do this intentionally. I mean, he even talked about becoming all things to all men, so he had win all, all of them to Christ. So we don't need to be in people's face intentionally. Give none offense, neither to the three groups here, to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, which today in this dispensation comprises both Jew and Gentile. So some of your Bible is written to Gentiles. Did I put a list of this in your handout? So, you know, Job, uh, written to Gentiles. Daniel, duration of Gentile dominion. Obadiah, Jonah, how to obey the word of God's witness going to Gentiles. Nahum, Habakkuk, some of the Bible is addressed to Jews. Genesis through Joshua. Judges through Chronicles. Ezra through Proverbs. Ecclesiastes to Ezekiel. Uh, and then uh, most all the Old Testament prophets. As far as that goes, Matthew, Matthew through John, biographies of the Messiah, the book of Acts. Then you've got a historical transition to the church. Hebrews through Revelation, the Hebrew Christian epistles. Only one section of the Bible is addressed specifically to the church or pastors. Romans through Philemon, the Christian church epistles. Now wait, because that means that is the place we have to apply doctrine from. And that is what it means to rightly divide. And yet, and yet, biblical revelation has three distinct plans. Now turn to Genesis chapter 1. Three distinct plans. God has a plan for the universe. And we're not going to look at all of these verses, but we've listed them for you here on your outline sheet so that you can look them up at your leisure. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for this earth. God has a plan for your life. God's plan for the universe involves worlds that he has made and the increase of Christ's government, which should, there should be no end. And he created the heavens and formed them to be inhabited. So the universe is comprised of other worlds and God's plan is for it to accommodate the expansion of Christ's kingdom, colonizing the universe into eternity. That's God's plan for the universe. What's his plan for this planet? Did I say turn to Genesis 1? Yeah. Okay, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Okay, we lost that. We're trying to get back to, to step one. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and fowl of the air, the cattle over the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God's plan for the earth, be turning to Romans 8. God's plan for the earth is to fulfill the commission of Adam as a first step toward establishing Christ's kingdom on other worlds. So his plan began in the Garden of Eden, and all human history 
is God simply overcoming sin and Satan's opposition to get us back to the original plan? Creation, ruin, redemption. But how does this fit into his plan for your life? Well, look at Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Back to step one. God predestinates, once you get saved, God predestinates you to get, be able to get back to the first step. So that, so that he, his Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Adam was supposed to be the firstborn among many brethren and messed up. We get so much more in what we get in Christ and having him as our elder brother. So God's plan for your life is to restore the image of God that was lost at the fall. That's why you need to be a Christian, not just a Christ follower. That way you can complete the commission given in the garden and establish God's kingdom in the universe. And then all three ethnic divisions, Jew, Gentile, and church, play a major role in eternity. God's plan for the earth is Jewish rule. The new earth is primarily for Israel, but they are ruling over Gentiles' nations because God's plan for the universe is Gentile colonization. But that colonization will be a kingdom that branches out in 12 branches according to the 12 tribes of, of the 12 constellations of, of, uh, uh, of, the, of the heavens. And so God's plan for the church is true replacement theology. And true replacement theology means the church is not the replacement for Israel. The church is the replacement for the fallen sons of God. And we will take the Gentiles out to colonize the currently sons of godless world that, that have had no righteous Christ-like sons of God since the time that Satan fell and took a third of those angelic beings with him in his rebellion. So we'll be able to do this from the New Jerusalem as headquarters because we'll have glorified bodies. So you'll never fully comprehend God's plan for your life until you fit it into God's plan for this earth and God's plan for this universe. Doesn't that place all the problems in your life in perspective? Doesn't that just give you a new viewpoint on all your difficulties this week? I mean... This was worth the price of registration. And these three distinct plans have three simultaneous applications. Now, all, all Scripture is applicable to us. The question is, how does it apply? All, all the Bible is written for us. It's written for our learning, according to Romans 15, 4. It's written for our admonition, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So all of it's written for us, but not all of it is written to us. So we must rightly divide it as we study. You cannot take things written for someone else and apply them to you doctrinally. That is identity theft. So let me frame it this way. The Bible is just like God is. The thing that makes God God is that he is past, present, and future all at once. Now, that's the thing that makes the Bible God's book. And I know that I can burn my Bible and I can't burn God and I can tear up my Bible and I can't tear up God. But you know that the Bible is the Word of God because every passage has three simultaneous applications. Past, present, future all at once. 
There's a past historical application, a present inspirational one, a future prophetic or doctrinal one. So number one, the historical application means that passage is 100% accurate in history. And sometimes scientists catch up. The more archaeology they do, the more it tends to confirm the history. Number two, the inspirational is also called personal, devotional, or practical. And while there are many inspirational applications in the Word of God, personal instructions are only received through underlying Bible principles. Those principles remain constant. They transcend dispensations. So the Holy Spirit can make the application fit your situation and speak to your conscience concerning his will for your life. Number three, doctrinal is also called prophetic or theological. Things that are written doctrinally, theologically, or prophetically to the Jews will not apply to me in a doctrinal or theological sense in the church age. You can only apply doctrinally those things that are written to you. Apply inspirationally all of Scripture because it's all for you. For example, Joshua chapter 1. Historically, it pictures Israel occupying the land. Inspirationally, it pictures the believer today resting in God's promises while he claims victory in ministry. And doctrinally, it pictures the second coming of Christ. Did I give you all that lovely detail on your outline in the handout? Not quite. Genesis 19. Historically, Lot's rescue from Sodom. Inspirationally, the condition of believers at the rapture. Doctrinally, this pictures the rescue of tribulation saints from the destruction of Babylon. Hebrews 6, historically, well, that pictures the Jew of Acts chapter 8 who loses his salvation. Inspirationally, it teaches us the folly of those who deny the eternal security of the believer. Doctrinally, this pictures the tribulation saint who turns back and takes the mark of the beast, and he cannot get saved again after that. So this plan unfolds uh, in the Bible as it involves, I will say, three kingdoms. Now turn to Colossians chapter 1, because I'm framing this a little differently than you've heard it before, so that you'll stay awake, because we're almost to the end, and I knew you'd be falling asleep by now. And if I say everything like you've always heard it, then you won't listen to it anymore. So, so what we discover in the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, what we discover, I would say, are three kingdoms. One is counterfeit and corrupted. It is a, rever it is a reverse image negative of the original. You were born into the false one by being born physically from Adam. And while we lost much in Adam's fall, we gained much more in Jesus. So much so that even though we lost one kingdom, we gained two. We, we, we lost one kingdom, and then God split it. He split the original kingdom, and so now we have the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Okay, watch. Watch. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 13. The Father hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Turn to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. There is a power of darkness which in its hour functions as a corruption of the kingdom. It has been counterfeited in the kingdoms of this world, beginning with Babel, 
which, which being the original earthly counterfeit, encompassed both political and religious roles in Genesis 10. Its spiritual aspects today have been counterfeited by the imperial church at Rome. And its political counterfeit will culminate in the throne of the beast, Revelation 16. So, so here in Proverbs 14, here is the verse that will help you sort out the spiritual warfare that is surrounding these kingdoms. Proverbs 14, verse 28. In the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. Now, this is the first of nine verses in the book of Proverbs that we call royal Proverbs. And we call them royal Proverbs because they ad advise and advertise uh, wisdom to kings and rulers. So the, so the first point for study for a king is how a kingdom is not simply composed of a title, a promise, a warranty deed to a land. The king kingdom is also composed of the souls of people. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is why the topic of the kingdom is the key to understanding your Bible. Jesus and the devil are both in an eternal contest for conquest of the souls of men and women because whichever one loses ends up being destroyed. According to Proverbs 14, 28. Okay, watch. Did I say turn to Matthew 4? Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil taketh Jesus up into an exceeding high mountain, which could be a subtweet for kingdom, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. All these things will I give thee, but he says nothing about the souls. He ain't given up the souls. In Luke's account, he adds, all this power will I give thee, but he says nothing about the people. He ain't given up the people. You know, I like John Maxwell's definition of leadership. All leadership is influence. And I like that because a position without people following you is pointless. Hello, somebody. Titles without followers are worthless. So the false counterfeit is a kingdom of darkness and death. The other is a kingdom of light and life. And everyone in the world is in one of those two kingdoms. And if you're in the kingdom of darkness and death, you're under subjection to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But if you're in the kingdom of light and life then Christ is your Lord, liberty is your legacy, because you have been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God's dear Son. And because God always outdoes the devil, Satan's supposed success in crucifying Christ simply resulted in a doubling of the true kingdom into the kingdom of God now and the kingdom of heaven to return. And I understand those two terms appear to be used synonymously in some of the Gospels. That's why theologians like N.T. Wright would say that they're the same. What he forgets is the king of both kingdoms was then present. So you can use the terms interchangeably. But when you get down to the business of rightly dividing, you discover the kingdom, like our salvation, has three tenses. In salvation... 
uh, uh, on the cross we have been justified, past tense. By the Spirit we are being sanctified, present tense. And one day we will be glorified, future tense. Well, the kingdom is also 3D. Number one, the kingdom had a past territorial dimension because it's based on the Davidic covenant, the kingdom of heaven passed. But that kingdom was postponed when the Jews rejected it. So after the cross, the mystery of the church is revealed. The mystery of the church is revealed, gaining subjects now for an everlasting kingdom. How can Jesus do that? Because he can raise them from the dead. So number two, the kingdom has a present abstract spiritual dimension because Christ has inaugurated new covenant salvation. We are translated into the kingdom of Christ right now because the Spirit has already come. Wait, the Spirit has already come. That's why we can be translated into His kingdom right now. Colossians 1.13 uh, says that we inherit that kingdom, and, and you know what? We will inherit it, says in other places, if we suffer with Jesus in this life, we will have rulership in it. We inherit it, but we'll have rulership if we suffer with him. So the kingdom hasn't exactly come, but the Spirit has, and so we're translated into the kingdom of God. But number three, the kingdom has a future concrete and material dimension because Christ and his bride are going to bring it in at his second coming and judgment. So the kingdom of heaven has not yet come and will not yet arrive until Jesus returns. Now turn to Psalm 103. We do not fight to bring in the kingdom. Only Christ does that at his return. With this, our life is not fighting to bring in the kingdom. Missions is not a fight to bring in the kingdom. We are in a fight to bring souls into the kingdom that currently exists. It's already here. So, so we're in a fight for souls so there will be subjects for our king. So we don't fight to bring in the kingdom. We fish to bring men and women into the kingdom of God. Remember Proverbs 14, 28. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Until then, we're to get men and women coming into the kingdom of God. So we put on your handout, there's a chart that gives you the distinctions and distinctives between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and between the kingdom of heaven and the church. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. That is the definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of God over heaven and earth. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of God over earth. But the kingdom of God is the reign of God over heaven and earth. It includes angels and all those who have been born again. It's inward and spiritual. The kingdom of heaven is, is the reign of heaven over earth. It is literal and visible. It is a fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel. But because it's earthly, and Rome and the reformers are identity thieves, they counterfeit the kingdom of heaven in their cathedrals and in their covenant theology. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15 because we're about ready to wrap up.
This is so clear because in, in the book of Revelation, the church inhabits the kingdom of God and it's entirely spiritual in the sense that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. There's no sacrifices during the millennium for church age saints. There's not even a literal visible sun or moon. And we're the stars. So the king craves subjects. First question from the pulpit today is this, are you one of them? Second question is, are you getting more of them? Here's our second point for study. Because the goal of discipleship is to make kingdom subjects and little Christ. Are you prepared for the king's dominion to finally come? Because after that, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And that leads us into a consideration of Christ's work in three dispensational ages. Many times people consider the life of Christ only in terms of his earthly ministry. The baby born in Bethlehem, he lived 33 years, he died on Calvary. They forget that before his physical birth, he had a role. After his physical birth, he also has a role. So he has three roles. He's, he's the eternal Christ of eternal purpose. So the dispensational work of Christ consists in holding three successive offices. First, his past role as prophet. And Jesus served in this role from the fall of Adam until the cross. And during that time, he has typified the picture is an altar that points back to the fall and points forward to the cross. The result of this office was the salvation of man, according to Titus 2, verse 11. So in his past role as prophet, he appeared three ways. Letter A, as the word in creation. And we don't have time to go to the verses, but we listed them for you. Letter B, as the Lord God in Old Testament times. He was the angel of the Lord. The I am that I, that I am. He was the captain of the Lord's host. His work then was primarily with the people of Israel. Letter C, he was the redeemer during the days of his incarnation. He was God manifest in flesh. His purpose was to make an atonement for sin. So that's his past role as prophet, his present role. He functions as priest. And he serves in this role from the time of his ascension until the rapture of the church. During his role as prophet, there was an altar. It pointed back to the fall and it pointed forward to the cross. During his role as priest, there is a table. It points back to the cross and forward to his second coming. And during this time, he intercedes. He is an advocate for believers. He's a mediator between man and God for the believer and for the unbeliever. He also sanctifies the believer. But in the final analysis, and this is number three, he has a future role, and that is his king. He, he will serve in this role during the millennial reign on earth, and during this period, the distinguishing characteristic is not an altar that points backward and forward, and not a table that looks back and forward, but a throne that looks back at the second coming and onto the eternal kingdom, which will be the beginning of his everlasting kingdom. So his first office shows us justification. 
His second office brings us sanctification. His third office is going to inaugurate glorification. Titus 2.13. So these basic divisions in the ministry of Christ, his roles, form the foundation for the basic boundary lines in God's eternal purpose. Pour a hemplo. Church age saints, we are prophets presently on earth, preachers of the gospel. We will be priests in the millennial kingdom, Revelation 26, and we will reign as kings in the eternal future. God's eternal purpose, Gentiles function as prophets in the new heavens, Jews function as priests on the earth, the church functions as kings from the new Jerusalem. So in summary, what we see, and this is, this is the conflict for souls that spans eternity in times and seasons. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. My goal today is to give you the kind of stuff and so much stuff that it makes you hungry for tomorrow. This conflict for souls spans eternity in times and seasons. Number one, let's talk about eternity. You might say eternity has two parts to it, eternity past and eternity future, because eternity past was the creative ages. God made spiritual beings. God created the material universe, and God set Adam up on a recreated earth after the, the fall of Satan. Eternity future is the ages of the ages. So, so there's one aspect of eternity before time, and then the rest of eternity falls after time. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So we've got eternity Second, we've got seasons. Seasons are due to the movement and changing characteristics of the planets and the stars. So God ordained objects in the heavens to control seasons so we could regulate time. Because without seasons, you have no way of knowing how much time has passed. And that brings us to number three, time. God's plan for the kingdom required a parenthetical detour into the church age, right? I mean, Christ came, the kingdom was at hand, but they crucified their king. God called time out and inserted the church. Dispensation of grace. Church age, parenthetically, and then Christ comes back and picks up where he left off, as it were. So the kingdom required a parenthetical detour into the church age, just like God's eternal purpose required a parenthetical detour into time. Time is that parenthetic division between eternity past and eternity future. And God needed time. God needed time in order to work out his plan. Because this is our third point for study. Time is what provides a period of testing. It is during the testing process that happens in time that God separates failure from success, separates disobedience from trust. Therefore, within the framework of time, God works out dispensations. So within time, 
there's an unfolding of seven dispensations. During time, there are seven dispensations in the outworking of God's eternal purpose. Because they take place in time, each one provides a period of testing. So there's trouble with the truth today. And truth be told, some of you haven't been able to get with me this whole time because you're wondering whatever happened to that Marshall, Texas college debate team. And there's this scene late in the movie where circumstances conspire against Professor Tolson and they cause him to contemplate quitting. But at that point, he reminds his debate team members of the giant wrestler Antaeus in Greek mythology. And Antaeus was a son of the sea god Poseidon and Gaia, the goddess of the earth. Okay, wait, let me be kind and rewind because you missed that. He was the son of a god, but he was born on the earth. So what had happened was, whenever he was thrown down, after he came in contact with Mother Earth, he raised up fortified. And that really only meant that defeat made him stronger. You know, in our Roman mindset, in our world today, nobody wants to be a loser. But in God's kingdom, by God's grace, defeat just makes us stronger. Ridicule just makes us smarter. It drives us to the Bible. It forces us to validate the things that we say we know. Do not capitulate to Calvinism, fatalism, postmodernism, re relativism, or evangelical uncertaintyisms. This is the unique thing about Baptist churches. This is the reason that we are comfortable with the name Baptist. This is why we're okay with the historical distinctive of Baptists even though it means claiming a name given to us by our detractors. Because historically we are the people that stand by God, stand by the book. And if you will stand by God and stand by the book, God will stand by your side and the Holy Spirit will be your guide. So sometimes I think I'm Antaeus. I feel afflicted sometimes, but he uses the chisel of affliction to sculpt my soul. I feel weak sometimes, but he uses dark weakness, and it deepens my dependence. And then the weaker I feel, the harder I lean, and the harder I lean, the more living my faith, and the more revived my faith, the better I get back up again. So if you're down, get up. If you're weak, look to the strong one for your strength. If you want to let go, hold on. If you want to give up, hold out. We, have, we serve a God who is worthy of a rebound revival. Go ahead and stand and grab your neighbor by the hand. Father, we thank you today for this time in your word. We thank you for the way you just, uh, Lord, you are so awesome. You amaze us. You amaze us by just cracking open the Bible and viewing it through certainty glasses and not uncertainty glasses. When we're able to view it 
believingly and not skeptically, when we have a living faith, then God, it speaks and it shows us all sorts of things. And the things that it shows us, God, if we today would take to heart, boy, it would correct us.